Welcome to Sagittarius Eye Audio Edition, issue 13, September 3304. Word for word, the articles that appear in this month's Sagittarius Eye magazine, expertly recorded to keep you entertained and informed, out in the black. Editorial. It's September, and issue 13 for Sagittarius Eye. We promise that the next 12 will be even better. As proof, take a look at the fantastic articles within this issue. To kick our second year off with a bang, we cover everything from human leaders and Thargoid warmongering tools to what colour of flight suit is the most appropriate for the modern, fashion-conscious commander. The magazine continues to grow as enthusiastic commanders flock to our lobby, both in the form of direct contributors and our generous patrons, whose financial support helps us breathe a bit more easily in the vacuum. With this growth comes an impetus to develop and update the way we do things. Some of this happens internally, with an evisceration of outdated processes and people who are just doing things too slowly. We're just kidding, processes don't have viscera to remove. Other changes are more publicly visible. The most prominent is our new cockpit listening option introduced last month, which we hope to continue and improve with your ongoing and enthusiastic feedback. Change is a tricky thing. To stay rooted in the past, refusing to explore new possibilities is to wither and die. But to charge blindly into the future without learning the lessons of history is dangerous and foolhardy. In our lineup this month, we have tried to strike a balance between honouring the past achievements of valorous commanders and preparing our readers for the future. We interview the Fuel Rats about their emergence into the galaxy, explore the histories of a few illustrious figures, and review the achievements of one of humanity's most important organisations, Galcop. At the same time, we discuss the enigmatic motivations of Thargoid allies, and continue our review of the Alliance's most recently developed ships. You see, constructing a firm foundation for a magazine is important, but that premise is useless if not expanded upon. The human story is one of continual advancement, and our publication is a microcosm of that narrative. We must include diverse and interesting stories, adopt new forms of distribution for our content, and not be afraid to take risks on projects that may, in the end, fail. To do anything less is a disservice to our loyal readers. It is a privilege for us to share our stories and articles as you take time from your busy lives to read about, or listen to, this marvellous galaxy we live in. We push forward, keeping in mind what has gone before. With your trust and support, as well as our amazing partnership with the SPVFA and our incredible patrons, there is no limit to the heights we can attain in this ongoing journey. Fly safe, Commanders, but fly boldly. Sagittarius I will be right there alongside. Addendum On the 29th of August, 3304, our office on Lave Station was targeted in a politically motivated attack by a group calling themselves the Alchemy Den. Our printing equipment was utterly destroyed, and the explosion structurally damaged the building beyond repair. We currently have no reason to believe that Alchemy Den bore our magazine's specific ill will, and we assume that we were targeted to maximise attention. Tragically, our well-known editor Rasudin was in the print room at the time of the attack. Despite heroic efforts by Lave Security and the emergency services, he could not be revived after being recovered from the debris. It is no overstatement to say that Rasudin's commitment to the search for truth was formidable. He will be greatly missed as an inimitable colleague, journalist and friend.
Misguided efforts to place principles above lives are precisely what a vibrant free press exists to expose. Sagittarius I will continue, unbowed, to vocally denounce violence and tyranny in all their guises. 07 Commander Sympathy for the Devil Thargoid Supporters In January 3303, the first pilot was ripped out of hyperspace and scanned by a huge, octagonal, unknown ship. Throughout that year, speculation about the aliens' intentions was rampant amongst commentators and commanders alike. In fact, the first issue of Sagittarius I explored this question. Many people predicted that the Thargoids would prove to be hostile, but nearly as many expressed reservations. Rumors told of two dynasties of Thargoids, one more hostile than the other. Many others simply didn't believe that the aliens wished to harm us at all, or had any reason to do so. Commander Litnil, a well-known Pilots' Federation explorer, summed up the feelings of many at the time. I like to think we can cooperate peacefully, but fear that dark forces, politicians and rogue commanders who wish to create a them-and-us scenario to amass their own personal power will push us into conflict. In late 3303, the Thargoid attacks on stations began with the fall of the Oracle in the Pleiades star cluster. For most observers, this resolved the friend-or-foe question. Pilots' Federation member Camillo Mundaka told us, The first time they hyperdicted me and just stared, it was creepy, but I thought, they can't be that bad if they just stare at you. Then the attacks began, and they attacked me. I lost 60 million credits to insurance claims, a cutter, and my crew member Tim. However, not everyone sees the situation as so cut and dried. Even today, pockets of suspicion still exist about the superpower's knowledge of and dealings with the Thargoids. Whilst researching this article, Sagittarius I discovered that while sympathy for the aliens themselves was rare, general disquiet about the state of the war, and the multinational Aegis initiative in particular, persists. Commander Julian McCoy of the Black Star Coalition is a well-known xenobiologist who is no stranger to controversy. There are networks of like-minded individuals who have worked to disrupt Aegis. Aegis is the Tri-Superpower Task Force set up to coordinate humanity's defense. McCoy denies that humanity is at war at all. The superpowers and whoever is manipulating them, Aegis included, are all trying to present that narrative to the galaxy. But it's simply not true. If this were a war, we would be massacred. Stations would be in tiny pieces, not just crippled. He points out that station damage is carefully targeted, and that the Thargoids cripple reactors and rip open storage pods, perhaps to retrieve what's been stolen from them. This general mistrust of Aegis' war narrative isn't confined to fringe groups either. Commander Deadmeat GF responded to a Sagai poll, telling us, I don't consider myself pro-Thargoid per se, but I am suspicious about the information we're being fed. I distrust Aegis and have concerns about their agenda. My main concerns are that I've never seen evidence of a Thargoid shooting first. Personally, I've been hyperdicted and scanned, but never attacked. McCoy and those who share his thinking aren't Thargoid sympathizers, it's worth noting. They see Thargoids as a threat, but not the main antagonist in the story of war. 
There's no real enemy. It's not all black and white. There are lots of influences at work, and we can't point the finger at one in particular. Thargoids are part of the problem, not the sole issue. Deadmeat GF notes that... Aegis is very keen to point Pilots Federation members at the Thargoids, but are never there themselves to fight. It smacks of subterfuge and manipulation. And for those reasons, I am more suspicious of Aegis than I am of the Thargoids. Then there are those who aren't looking for evidence. The Far God Cult, a fringe sect believed to worship the Thargoids, is currently under investigation by the Federal Intelligence Service following allegations that they are in contact with the aliens. They have received plenty of coverage so far in 3304 for their extreme beliefs, which many see as extremely provocative in light of the many thousands of deaths since the alien incursion began. Hate Aegis, Love Thargoids, Halt, are a little publicized Pilots Federation group who share many of the Far Gold Cult's beliefs. We spoke to them to find out whether their beliefs had changed since the invasion. We're stealing systems the Thargoids previously claimed. Commander Stinkfist of Halt told us. They were here long before us, and will be here long after. Added Commander Sky. Systems that the Aegis-operated Eagle Eye system identify as targets are publicly broadcast to Pilots Federation members, who swarm to them to destroy the Thargoid scouts that congregate there. Aegis seems to be luring Thargoid incursions to specific systems at their whim, said Stinkfist. Members of HALT target these pilots and attempt to dissuade them, according to a strict code of conduct. Commander Truffle Shuffle, HALT's leader, explains. High waking them. Forcing them to jump to another star, out of the system, is our primary goal. They are keen to emphasize that they are not murder hobos, as itinerant pilot killers are sometimes called, and only target those ships flown by pilot Federation members carrying stolen Thargoid artifacts or Aegis-designed anti-Thargoid weaponry. They make exceptions for ships carrying Thargoid objects in the interests of science. Truffle Shuffle tells us, I know two commanders who used to carry Thargoid cargo. I never attacked them because they were conducting communication research. We embarked upon this article expecting to unearth a titillating clutch of fruitcakes, clinging to entertaining but far-fetched beliefs in the face of incontrovertible evidence. To our surprise, we've discovered that those who think that Thargoids are more than just interstellar boogeymen are more numerous and more consistent in their opinions than we could have imagined. There are several key questions we can't avoid when it comes to the war. Why do we never see anyone engage the Thargoids who isn't a member of the Pilots' Federation? Why does the much-touted Thargoid link direct us to human-made transmitters and target systems? Who placed those transmitters there? And do they serve any purpose beyond apparently luring Thargoid scouts? It's beyond the scope of this article to begin to answer these questions, but we encourage readers to keep a more open mind than this correspondent had when he first approached the topic. Commander Justin Hill, in response to our poll, perhaps spoke for many when he summed up the general sense of unease. I don't know enough about them to make a judgment yet, and I don't think any of us do. The human race is no different. We're forever shooting first and asking questions afterwards, much like we're doing to the Thargoids. Commanding your clothing. 3304 is shaping up to be a great year for fashion. 
with the release of a variety of different clothes on the commodities markets around the bubble. Even in these troubled times, we must be comfortable in what we wear and remember that a little bit of colour and style can improve our mood and reflect well in social and professional engagements. A vast array of flight suits, jackets, trousers and even makeup and eyewear can be purchased to draw attention to your accomplishments from other envious commanders. And these items are now more accessible than ever. While walking about the loading docks at the Oracle last week, your correspondent's attention was drawn to a pair of commanders clad in dark, subdued clothing. Unlike the bright and exuberant flight suits often paraded by independent pilots in the loading bay and local drinking establishments, we discovered that one of these fashionable individuals was a young explorer named Commander Smyrin, and the other the brilliant scientist and xenobiologist Zion Pierce. Your correspondent briefly interviewed the pair about their chosen attire. Commander Smyrin explains, I love imperial fashion, you know. The long, flowing gowns, delicate fabrics, beautiful designs. It's so graceful, and you feel about a foot taller, too. They don't love me, though. What happens when you spend all of your time on your own in a pressurized tin can and have to do all the grunt work for yourself? Well, I do what I can, but after too many tears from exposed bolts and struts, I tend to wear sleeveless clothes now. What's left is still long and flowing, though. You get too hot when fuel scooping to want anything too tight or warm. As for patterns or bright colors, forget about it. I wish I could pull it off, but when you're a couple of weeks out of dock, all you need is one bad day with a sealant gun or a coolant leak, and it's all ruined. I hate it, but some of my clothes are just plain and gray now. It's just easier that way. Zion Pierce, familiar with the difficulties of marrying function and style, admitted, These clothes may look dark and plain, but it's a deliberate choice. If things go down, they are a tactical advantage. Plain enough to not draw attention, and dark enough that I can move around unnoticed. Not only are dark colours practical when you're out in the black, Zion managed to make them look stylish. Her outfit was quite fitted, despite built-in flexibility around the joints to enable movement and her boots were stylish, but also the perfect shape to clip into the pedals of a ship. However, fine pleats running up her coat and two subtle white panels stitched into the right side were a slight nod towards Imperial Flair. But what is Imperial Flair? Citizens of the Empire are an image-conscious people who take pride in their appearance. Extravagantly detailed and finely cut clothing is a common sight in Imperial society. The extravagance of dress denotes an individual's place in society, so wealthy individuals tend to quietly compete in pomp. By contrast, federal citizens are normally more practical in appearance, adhering to a professional style and muted, business-like tones. Austere grey suits are the order of the day amongst the business and political class, regardless of social station. In the build-up to what was expected to be the spectacular wedding of Federal Ambassador Jordan Rochester and Princess Ashling Deval, speculation was rampant about the competing influences of imperial flair and federal function. Would the bride and groom favour the elegance and ostentation of the upper echelons of imperial couture? Or would they instead prefer the clean lines and tasteful utilitarianism that define federal chic? Ultimately, spectators galaxy-wide were disappointed as bride and groom decided to cancel the wedding. However, sources inside the wedding planning team suggest that the pair had opted for a lavish but distinct fusion of styles, creating a spectacular synthesis 
that was uniquely their own. An unfederal flourish on the ambassador's attire here decidedly subdued millinery for an imperial grand dame there. Through careful and thoughtful coordination, we have been told, they intended to pull off a style that paid homage to both cultures. This is why the prospective joining of an imperial princess and a federal ambassador marks such a significant moment in the modern history of clothing and fashion. Had the wedding gone ahead, it would have transcended the widest political divide in our civilization, instead focusing only on the occasion. Colour and class embraced in a crossover of fashion, no doubt creating new trends that may have persisted long into the future. Instead, designers across the galaxy who had been preparing ranges of new styles of haute couture to reflect the fusion of styles expected to have been on display have found it necessary to sell these ranges at a much reduced price. There are now many bargains to be had for fashionistas on any budget. After searching the bubble, Sagittarius Eye researchers have found some of the best deals for our readers. Head over to Braun Orbital in Emutsu or Carlison Terminal in Abroin and get some great factory floor prices on commodity clothing, a bargain at just 100 credits at the time of writing. Remember, life is too short not to look good, even if you're lucky enough to have a ready supply of progenitor cells. Our clothes make a huge difference in how we interact with and come across to those we bump into along the spaceways. Powerful Women, the other half of the story. The women make up half the population of the bubble and hold a good chunk of its power. The average commander wouldn't know that from Galnet and other media publications. Besides the antics of imperial darling Ashling Duval, whose delicate features make for excellent holo viewing, female leaders are largely ignored in the public sphere. Even the current emperor, Arissa Lavini Duval, receives a good deal less coverage than she should. In the interest of offering commanders a more complete perspective on political power in the galaxy, in this piece, we explore the lives and careers of humanity's current female leaders. Emperor Rissa Lavini Duval may be the most powerful woman in the galaxy, at least officially. Thanks to legislation put in place by her father, Hengist Duval, she became the first female emperor following his passing in 3301. Although in popularity, she is arguably outstripped by her niece, Ashling Duval, she holds far more power and has defeated her politically many times, including in the fight for imperial succession. Arissa was always a princess by birth, even before revealing her relationship to Hengist, but did not rest on that title. Rather, she pushed hard throughout her life, becoming known for being willing to confront tough issues and root out corruption. She took power in a highly divisive era for the Empire, with her father struck down by a terrorist attack on the day of his wedding, and the organization responsible still threatening her legitimacy, she quickly took the reins and led her people in securing the Empire's security. Lavinie Duval has proven to be an exceptional leader, performing all the requisite duties of an imperial ruler with poise, while holding a firm line against the posturing of Zachary Hudson and the Federation. While the Empire is, by all appearances, the smaller and weaker of these two galactic superpowers, one would not know it by the way Lavinie Duval conducts herself in political affairs. Through all the galaxy, she appears fearless, confident, and incorruptible. She is also unafraid to share political power in pursuit of longer-term goals, offering much autonomy to her former rival, Admiral Denton Petraeus. 
Her closest counterpart on the side of the Federation is Felicia Winters, former acting president and current shadow president. Winters was thrust into the role of acting president when President Jasmina Halsey went missing during a presidential tour. The former vice president having been recently assassinated, Winters stepped up admirably at short notice. It was perhaps inevitable that she would lose the presidential election to Zachary Hudson, the Liberal Party having been held responsible for many painful blunders in recent memory. If nothing else, Winters is an excellent representative of federal liberal values. She has always espoused the difficult choice if it means coming to the aid of those in need, a moral stance that has earned her the respect of many formerly skeptical voters. She has also been blessed by circumstance. Hudson's aggressive posturing against the Empire hasn't pleased all voters in recent years, especially as the Thargoids advance ever closer to the bubble's center. In these uncertain times, she has consistently pushed for unity between the Federation and Empire, soothing egos and lending aid in the middle of crises. Though she holds far less political power than Hudson, she may have done more good for the bubble's masses than the president. Lavinie Duval and Winters are the most powerful women in the bubble, but there are two more female political leaders worth examining. While Princess Ashling Duval is the more popular, Senator Zemina Torval likely wields more power, although she prefers to conduct her affairs from the shadows. Ex-President Jasmina Halsey is also worthy of mention, although she has suffered quite a fall from grace since her disappearance and apparent bout of insanity following months in an escape pod. The face and signature blue hair of the People's Princess are familiar to nearly every commander. She is most likely known for her theatrical political antics, her high-profile relationship with then-Senator Denton Petraeus, her anti-slavery organization Stop Slavery Stupid, now merged with Universal Liberty to create the new joint organization Unchain. She frequently appears on lightweight chat shows, choosing to avoid controversial topics in favor of entertainment value. While Ashling appears superficial, she is said by those who know her to be good-hearted and earnest, with an acknowledged cunning that comes with being surrounded by competent advisors. It is not for nothing that she is known as the people's princess. She is the definition of a populist, her policy position swaying to and fro with the attitudes of the masses. Some argue that it was probably best for the empire that her claim on the throne was not strong enough to overcome her aunts, given the enormously difficult political developments of the last several years. That said, she is also underestimated in the public eye, and many see her as merely a silly imperial pinup girl. There is guile and awareness to her political maneuverings. She recognizes that a good way for a woman to enter the spotlight is to be in a relationship with powerful men and her public good-heartedness has won her many supporters in the galactic community. It is no coincidence that she is by far the woman most covered by the galactic media. Arissa Lavinie Duval may hold the imperial throne, but Ashling Duval holds the empire's heart. One of the least known yet most powerful women in the bubble, Senator Zemina Torval, has always been something of a shadowy operator. She is bluntly practical and incredibly savvy. One of her public operations was a competition between her Imperial Slavers Association and Ashling Duval's Stop Slavery Stupid. Torval bet Duval that she would gather more unregulated slaves to be re-indentured as Imperial slaves than Ashling would gather Imperial slaves to be emancipated, and she did just that, receiving over twice the number delivered to Ashling. As a condition of her victory, 
Torvald mandated that Ashling travel with a retinue of imperial slaves for at least one year. Unfortunately for her strategy, she underestimated Ashling's control of the media, which appeared to completely forget about the bet following Torvald's victory. She publicly speaks out against many of Ashling's views, pointing out the practicality of the empire's system of regulated slavery and the foolishness of Ashling's antics. Most recently, she admonished Ashling for her engagement to federal ambassador, calling it an intention-seeking PR stunt. The vast majority of Senator Torvald's machinations do not make the news, but are very successful. She has amassed mind-boggling personal wealth as the primary share owner of Mastopolis Mining, which makes massive profits thanks to its use of slaves. Impartial on the slavery issue, Torval is not. What she is, though, is popular, at least among her supporters. She has relied on her massive fortune to reduce taxation rates and systems she controls to zero, a policy that has paid off in spades. Whether people living under Torval are actually better off is difficult to say, but they seem to think so, which in politics is more important. In some ways, she has more freedom than the emperor. For while Lavigny Duval must bear the burden of leadership, Torval is free to look after her interests, political and otherwise. Jasmina Halsey was once a powerful figure within the Federation, but her aggressive policies made her enemies from within the Liberal Party and led in part to her downfall. Now an advisor to the Alliance, she still holds some sway, though the majority of what political power there is in the Alliance belongs to Prime Minister Edmund Maone. Most other political power in the bubble, in fact, belongs to men, from serious corporation CEO Lee Yong-ri to notorious pirate Archon Delane. Outside of these political leaders, perhaps the most well-known female figures are some of the reclusive engineers. Felicity Farsier, Hera Tani, Didi Vatterman, Celine Jean, Liz Ryder, Tiana Fortune, Elvira Martuk, and Lori Jameson. These women do outstanding engineering work for commanders across the bubble, yet their work has caught little public attention. Unlike prominent male engineers such as Ramta and Ishmael Palin, whose studies of alien cultures have featured prominently in Galnet, few female engineers are ever mentioned in the media. One notable exception is Lori Jameson, who was roped into the current furor around the terrorist organization known as the League of Reparation. Jameson felt compelled to speak out against the League's murders of distant descendants of officers in the INRA, ostensibly as retribution for its fatal betrayal of her great-grandfather, the legendary John Jameson. For centuries, the masses of humanity have debated what might be responsible for the imbalance of power between men and women. When societal birth rates declined to stable levels at the turn of the third millennium, gender roles began to recede in importance, and a need for female representation in powerful positions began to become more and more pressing. It is frankly stunning that after more than a thousand years, the ratio of female to male leadership and power is still so very imbalanced. Female leaders in positions of galactic power trail male leaders at a rate of four to seven, and with the exception of the People's Princess, receive far less coverage in the media. What are the reasons for this lack of progress? Perhaps part of the answer lies in the apparent stagnation of human society. There has been little to no advancement in political and social power structures since humanity still resided slowly on Earth, and some would argue that we have even regressed. Wars and slavery are commonplace, and corruption runs rampant through the Federation and Empire alike. 
In the light of the situation, it is perhaps unsurprising that female leadership is not sought after as it should be. That said, this can only partially excuse this galactic power imbalance. Cultural gender roles remain in play because every member of our cultures, male and female alike, chooses to reinforce and support them. This creates a self-perpetuating cycle. Women who are physically attractive and publicly flirtatious like Ashling Duval find the media descending upon them in a frenzy, while women who quietly work for the good of society, like Felicia Winters, fade into the background. In this era where star-faring pilots hold more power than ever before, it may fall upon them to upend this imbalance, to support female leaders, to value their actions above their public appearance, and call out the injustices of those who elevate unworthy men above worthy women. What female leaders we have do incredible work in galactic society. If they were on a level playing field with their male counterparts, what new heights could humanity achieve? Working a little mischief. The Fuel Rats bar looks a bit run down, but comfortably so. On one wall, a huge slate leaderboard shows names and numbers written in chalk. The top three names, Commanders Termite Altair, Falcon JSDF, and Dystopia, are all well above a thousand rescues apiece. On an adjacent side of the room, a somewhat smaller comms panel scrolls through the current hashtag rat chat information. Both walls give the room a functionality that complements the obvious recreational qualities. Around the rest of the area are autographed pictures of ships and people, many signed with a simple thank you or similar expressions of praise and gratitude. The regular bartender, Commander Alec Turner, one of the longest-serving, although no longer active, fuel rats, busies himself in front of an impressive assortment of alcohol, keeping Commander Surly Badger's cup of strong black coffee topped off and warm. Yeah, that's fine, says Badger as Turner shows him the pot. Commander Surly Badger looks tired and rubs his hand over what one might call a mohawk coiffure, highlighting the iron gray and white colors of the bristles. One eye is bleached and scarred. The other seems gentle and thoughtful, though slightly bleary. I haven't been doing much with the rats lately, he admits. Whilst public records show he is more than comfortably well off, Badger maintains a look on the edge of down and out, wearing an old leather bomber jacket over his pilot's jumpsuit. On the shoulders, there is a small fuel rats patch, along with one for Hutton truckers and another for some paramilitary unit called Led Zeppelin. A gold pin on his lapel leads M.V. Longshot, atop a small but very detailed rendering of an Asp Explorer. One of the funny things about running out fuel, it doesn't matter if you're in the middle of the bubble and really close to an inhabited star or if you're on the other side of the galaxy. You're out fuel, and you're just as dead if we don't get you in time. In their early days, the fuel rats were an eclectic lot from every sort of person humanity had to offer. They all saw a need for a rescue service staffed by professionals who could get the job done. One of the few dissension points among the group was whether or not they should provide their services for a fee. Some were concerned about what they could get for each rescue, or whether there should even be any additional charges to clients to recoup the cost for all the time and effort already expended. Not a fan of rules or bureaucracy, Commander Badger, in an epic Pilots Federation forum post, sliced through all the rhetoric with a simple and direct precision, creating the Fuel Rat's code of conduct in the process. One, we have fuel. Two, you don't. Three, 
Any questions? The avoidance of rules and bureaucracy seemed to have influenced the mischief's political life as well. When asked about the apparent gulf between the rats' service to their fellow humans and supposedly self-serving anarchist politics, Badger downplays the conflict between the two. Well, anarchy isn't chaos. It's just a lack of formal leadership and hierarchy. We're self-organizing based on our doctrine of individual excellence, which basically says that each few rat is expected to act in a way most consistent with rescuing people and being really, really good at it. We sometimes have people join who think anarchy means a lack of responsibility, but that's almost exactly the opposite of the situation. We expect everyone to figure out what to do and to do their best, so we don't have leaders or anything like that. He continues with a wry smile. I came up with that idea because I was lazy. I didn't want to run an organization, and the kind of people who make great fuel rats aren't the kind of people who like being told what to do. It seemed to me that the only way to do things was to avoid getting heavy on the hierarchy and just focus on doing awesome rescues. It also helps with staffing. We've got alliance, imperials, pirates, bounty hunters, traders and explorers. Everyone pulls in the same direction, and there's no conflict at all. A loud cough emanates from behind the bar. Alec Turner studiously polishes a glass. Badger makes a face. Well, okay. We had one rat who was a pirate. He rescued a big fat T-9 and then escorted the guy to a nearby station. Next time the T-9 came out, it was fully fueled, see, so it was fair game. Mm, things get interesting in the fuel rats. Once the idea for the group was born, there was a question of how they would carry out each rescue. Together, running simulated rescues and documenting everything, the group began to refine the procedures required to consistently make safe recoveries of floundering ships. The very first rescue attempt was also the fuel rats' first success. On the 9th of June, 3301, Commander Anne Uranium traveled in supercruise over point fifteen light-years to assist a disabled python which had run out of fuel well short of its destination. The episode served to define how the group would report their attempts in every detail from that point on, asking the same questions each time. What happened? What did we do well? What was done poorly? What lessons were learned? The very next day, a second rescue this time by Commander Rusticolis, continued the trend, adding to the knowledge base of the entire mischief. Not every attempt was successful. Accurate triangulation of the client's position used to be, and still is at times, a huge obstacle, even for seasoned veterans. The problem is occasionally compounded by significant increases in the number of new pilots, such as was seen around December 3302, and can make things that much more difficult with the rat's limited resources. Badger rubs his face thoughtfully. What happens is, because a handful of rats get assigned to each rescue, it's, it's very dramatic and important for the client as well as for those rats and maybe the dispatcher. I'm, I'm not kidding when I say dramatic. We'd have guys spend a day in the command chair jumping as fast as they could get to a client and then they're suddenly dealing with that client's oxygen clock winding down and they're trying to find them in a star system in the middle of no place. It's intense. Dispatching gets hairy too. We used to do it all manually and that meant a dispatcher on comms might be coordinating two or three simultaneous rescues. The guys who run dispatcher 
are some amazingly cool characters. A technique for triangulation perfected by the fuel rats, estimating the client's distance along a vector from the jump-in point of a star would position a number of them along the probable path of the stranded ship so at least one of them could drop down directly into normal space once an accurate position was determined, all in the hope that it was before the client ran out of time. Badger recounts a memorable example. A fuel rat was sent out to rescue a stricken anaconda stranded deep in the gravity well of a planet. With its orbit rapidly decaying, there was only a very small window of opportunity in which to find, catch up to, and refuel the falling ship. In this case, physics rather than oxygen was the more pressing issue. Another technique, termed sundiving by its practitioners, was also developed through the necessity by the mischief. Imagine trying to find a stranded client who is nearly out of oxygen and overheating somewhere in the hot plasma of a star's corona. The rescuer has to jump into the system, fly directly into that inferno, find the client, fuel them, and then make sure they both escape, all before the client runs out of breath or either ship burns up from the excessive heat damage. Dramatic indeed. Treating every rescue attempt as both a demonstration of expertise as well as a learning experience for the entire mischief has driven the high overall success rate and their soaring reputation. They have been going strong since their inception, reaching an incredible milestone of 40,000 rescues in March 3304. With a few exceptions, the rats have consistently maintained a daily average save rate of well over 90%. These rescues have ranged across the entire galaxy, with at least one of them well beyond the galaxy's edge. The fuel rat's reputation for professionalism is hard-earned and well-deserved. While sitting with Badger, he recounts one significant incident that boosted the fuel rat's early fame. Some of the rescues have included gigantic amounts of exploration data. One of our early ones was, was codenamed Operation Neospike. The client was an explorer who had suffered so much heat damage that it had disabled his fuel scoop. We figured the only way to get him home was to set up a bucket brigade. A lot of guys chipped in to bring him in, happened to be exploring near the area and flew hard and fast, got there in time to fire a single limpet. We try to make sure we have redundant coverage for safety reasons, but redundancy means some people don't get as much of the glory as they probably should. Over the years, fuel rats have been ambushed, held hostage, and even hunted and killed in the line of this voluntary duty. Could glory make all this worthwhile, or is there something else involved here? Badger reaches for the cup, sipping before answering. Team spirit. Glory. Still a success. That's pretty much it. We get to learn that we're pretty good pilots problems the fuel rats are dealing with are logistics, navigation, time. It's a complex situation and it's a good feeling to be able to help someone out. And for sure, it's not about the money. We make huge runs and don't stop to explore. We fly expensive ships and spend lots of time in the command chair just so we can fire a limpet at some guy, wave, and fly off. The rewards are all intangible. Even with updated Pilots Federation navigation software that allows pilots to avoid non-scoopable star types, the rats stay busy, averaging around 40 rescues each day. During the 30-day period between the 26th of June and the 25th of July, 3303, 
that average climbed to over 100 individual rescues per day, spiking on the 8th of July with 157 attempts in just that 24-hour period. Training, new navigation software, and safety of flight systems all contribute to reduce the number of incidents, but there still seems to be a never-ending need for the service. Little mistakes turn into big mistakes. About a year ago, I kitted my conda out for mining and I was making a run from Atlantis down to Jura for heavy metals. I'd been bounty hunting with it and I'd messed up the loadout. When I left Atlantis, I had a nagging feeling I'd forgotten something. Maybe cream for my coffee, eh? But no, I'd forgotten my fuel scoop. So, I had to go into our dedicated rat chat and say... Rat signal, be advised, this is not a drill. Surly Badger says with a shrug. There were a lot of Snickers, but they rescued me pretty quickly. Alec comes by and refills Badger's coffee again, chuckling at the memory. (laughs) Most likely it's new pilots who haven't really figured out how to navigate yet, or sometimes it's pilots that do an emergency jump to dodge pirates. When you have pirates shooting at you, you might just jump along, hard jump, and you don't have time to check what's on the other side. Nowadays, the jump display tells you, but that was added in the newer software for exactly this reason. As for the guys that do it, the fuel rats are the best bunch of pilots I've ever had the honour to know. There's never been a second of doubt concerning our mission in any of our minds, though I've Heard some of them express a bit of consternation at having to explain to a spouse that they're stuck in the command chair for 24 plus hours because they're rescuing someone. When it comes down to questions about his plans for the future, Badger says he's just taking it a day at a time. Um, mostly retired now. Watching my bar tab and waistline grow. I'm sure the urge to explore will hit me again and... Then I'll be out there in the deep zones once more. If certain events um, ever catch up to me, I'll probably be out there deeper and faster with a lot less warning. He stands up and flexes his arms stiffly. I gotta store that coffee right now. I'll be right back. He says, shambling toward the restroom. About five minutes later, Alec Turner comes by to collect the empty coffee cup and grimaces at the unpaid charges. He run off on you. Uh, Badger always does that. He shakes his head and sighs. Smiling, Sagittarius' eye picks up the tab. It's the very least we can do. Tactical Considerations Take it to the ground. At some point in most freelancer contractors' careers, they will be required to perform a base assault. In this guide, we introduce the concept and show newcomers how it's done. After all, nothing sharpens the senses like hearing the engines whine as they strain against gravity, while avoiding incoming ground fire. Planetary incursion is not for everyone, and presents a unique set of challenges. Not only will the operation start close to a planetary surface, it may require engaging targets both in the air and on the ground. Often, the final part of a mission will require the use of a surface recon vehicle, or SRV, to insert a remote patch into a comms array, sabotage a power generator, or locate specific cargo canisters from a supply dump. 
Most importantly, there needs to be an understanding that whatever the exact parameters of the mission, you will be undertaking a hostile action against a faction's facilities, and that means that somewhere there will be a price on your head. As with all missions, it's essential to read the brief before accepting it, know where to go and whose jurisdiction you're about to violate. Taking on base defenses usually results in a bounty, so care must be taken in selecting missions aimed at friendly factions. Unless that is your intent. The term planetary incursion covers a wide variety of mission profiles, but the basic principles are all similar. First, locate the target site and make a successful approach before putting the SRV on the dirt to finish out the contract. After the ground phase, it's time to bug out and return to base to claim the reward. Resistance should be expected. Initially, the target base may not be hostile, but the moment the defense perimeter is crossed, things can only get hotter. Only in very rare occasions will a site have no active defense perimeter at all, allowing completion of the assigned mission without issue. Almost any ship can be used for planetary incursion operations. Many prefer a small, fast, agile craft, but even a Federal Corvette can work. The go-to ship for this sort of mission profile is, for many, the Imperial Courier. It's light, fast, and agile enough that even at low altitude it can swing the nose around quickly to help the sensors locate your target. Being fast, it gets to the ground quickly, and it carries heavy shielding to protect from anti-air ground fire. With enhanced drives and engineering, this little ship can be a real monster. If the Imperial Courier is out of your budget, or you don't hold the Imperial Navy Auxiliary rank to acquire it, the Cobra Mark III is a viable alternative, and even the humble Eagle makes for an inexpensive option. At its most basic, planetary incursion requires the delivery of an SRV to the target site. So your ship must be equipped with a planetary vehicle hangar and an SRV. If the mission involves the salvaging of cargo canisters, ensure your ship has a cargo bay of sufficient size. Many surface bases have salvageable cargo simply lying about that can be picked up for additional credits, though be sure that the mission-critical cargo goes in first. Although not strictly required, it's a good idea to have an advanced discovery scanner installed. This device is a big time saver. If not carrying one, a scan of the navigation beacon orbiting the main star in the system will help in locating the target. The Advanced Discovery Scanner will provide this information upon completion of its scan, speeding up the process. If there is an expectation of significant resistance, such as might meet a strike on a military target, then dumbfire missiles are the go-to option. Ground targets do not resolve in most ship's sensor suites until very close, and cannot be locked upon so guided and direct-fire weapons are of limited value. Stock examples of these weapons are also restricted in range to about 3,000 meters. At that range, it is almost impossible to accurately make out small ground targets. Taking out specific targets means getting close, and that is not a good position to be in when facing anti-air defenses. Fire-and-forget weapons like the humble dumbfire have several distinct advantages. From a firing position higher up the gravity well, you can easily outrange any expected ground defenses, and dumb fires are usually effective out to nearly 5 kilometers. They are explosive weapons that detonate to spread over a greater area than most ordnance, causing damage to anything in range of the blast. This is great for clearing nests of skimmers. 
Often, illegal or military-type operations will be carried out against known targets, usually a base or an outpost. These facilities exist at recorded locations registered with Universal Cartographics, meaning there is rarely any uncertainty about where to find them. Unregistered targets require a little more effort. Upon arrival, there are two ways to identify which planetary body the target is on. The first and quickest is to use the Advanced Discovery Scanner. If this isn't available, scanning the local navigation beacon will obtain the location. However, this is only an approximate location, and a planet or moon makes for a large search area to cover. Once your ship enters orbit, the ship's sensor suite will determine the initial search location. As you close the distance, this position will be refined to pinpoint the exact position. It may mean piloting through a number of tight turns to keep the sensors fixed on the scan point. This can be dangerous at low altitude or in proximity to a high-gravity body. The type of target will determine the best approach. If flying a search grid, the angle of approach will be low. Usually this will place the ship a couple of kilometers from the base and under 1,000 meters in altitude. Assuming no hostility, a low and slow pass over the base is recommended, followed by touching down in a hollow or behind a surface feature that limits the line of fire from the base. It is important not to land so close to the base that the SRV cannot deploy its turret due to its auto-retract safety feature. Most ships will deploy the SRV facing towards the rear, so flying over the base and landing some distance on the other side will provide the best position for quick access to the vehicle bay in case things get out of hand. Against a registered target, there is another option. Pitching down during the glide approach to near vertical will bring the ship out of glide a good distance above the target. There, it will be beyond the range of surface-to-air defenses and still have gravity to assist with any required change in momentum. From a vertical approach, throttling back will allow time to view the layout of the entire base. As ground targets become visible, use dump fire missiles to destroy them well before coming into range of any return fire. This is the optimal position for skimmer destruction missions. From here, resistance can be eliminated. At this point, it is good to be aware that some military installations' defenses will not stay down for long. They will quickly restore function to damaged turrets. Hit and run is the order of the day. There will be occasions where no resistance is encountered. You can drive in, do the mission, and drive out. However, these are rare. While military facilities will offer the heaviest resistance, even a humble supply cache will usually sport a few skimmers. With a bit of practice, any Vodal SRV is more than capable of dealing with multiple hostile skimmers. Learning how to use terrain features to cover the approach and to limit returning fields of fire whilst eliminating the most dangerous threats quickly are the key skills required. There are two types of defense turret, surface-to-air and anti-vehicle. Aiming to destroy the anti-vehicle turrets first makes the most sense, as they have a high rate of fire and can cause significant damage to an SRV if not neutralized swiftly. Surface-to-air defenses pack a hard punch but are designed for ships and cannot target the small SRV. These can be left for last, but don't forget about them. The moment a hostile ship launches, these weapons will try to bring it down. Skimmers come in three basic variants. The suicidal stingers are just flying bombs that will attempt to crash into a hostile target and detonate. 
these are more of a psychological threat than a physical one, as they do not take much to kill. Lightweight, unshielded, and outfitted with poor guidance systems, they will often detonate due to a terrain collision on approach. Seekers are the most common type of skimmer encountered, often operating in packs of two or more. These twin-engine attack crafts are lightly shielded, with a lightweight hull and only a single weapon. Concentrated fire will quickly bring them down at close range. At longer range, they are harder to hit, and in packs, they become far more dangerous. It may be more effective to use hit-and-fade tactics, picking them off one at a time in order to allow the SRV's shields to recover before taking on another one. The final type of skimmer is the Colossus. Usually only encountered near military installations, these will give you very stiff resistance. They carry heavy shielding, multiple turret weapons, and missiles, making them one of the more dangerous flyers and a significant gun platform capable of also damaging smaller ships. If encountering more than one of these monsters, it's worth considering clearing out the nest with dumbfire missiles from high above. The Alliance Challenger In late February, Lacon Spaceways made an unexpected and impressive entrance into the combat ship scene. The Alliance Chieftain made waves with a revolutionary combat model, allowing it to compete with industry stalwarts such as Core Dynamics' Federal Assault Ship and Zorgon Peterson's Fur de Lance. Now, turning their attention to heavier combat ships, Lacon has released the Alliance Challenger. How well does it hold up to its competitors? Lacon, building on a strong foundation, has continued working with the basic chassis of the Chieftain. This is clear from the ship's outward appearance, though a few notable changes have been made. The forward engine nacelles have been removed, being replaced with simple control surfaces. To make up for the missing nacelles, two rear engines have been installed. While this rearrangement of thrusters has cost the ship some forward thrust and maneuverability, it has allowed the frame to accommodate more firepower. One of the large hard points from the chieftain's frame has been replaced with two medium hard points, not only boosting the overall firepower, but also the versatility of potential loadouts. The ship also keeps the four utility mounts of the Chieftain. Internally, Lacon has also made changes. While the core internals remain untouched, the optional internals have seen significant improvement. A second Class 6 compartment replaces the Class 5, and the Class 4 slot has been divided into two Class 3 slots. This represents an increase of efficiency and capacity, allowing the ship to support more and larger internal modules. Defensively, the ship is similar to the Chieftain. The base shield strength is almost identical, with only a very slight increase of capacity. However, the expanded optional internals combined with the increased base armor strength make for enormous hull resilience beneath the shields. Alternatively, Shield cell banks can also be fitted in the versatile internals, bolstering the capabilities of a high-capacity shield. Conversely, the Challenger lacks versatility in career paths other than combat. While its jump range is certainly adequate for a combat vessel, a fully stripped-down and engineered model struggles to make 40 light-years 
without assistance from the new Guardian frameshift drive boosters. As for cargo capacity, the ship suffers from the same weakness as the Chieftain. With three Class IV slots designated as military internals, the maximum cargo capacity is choked to a mere 152 tons unshielded. On paper, then, the Alliance Challenger is to the Chieftain as the Federal Dropship is to the Assault Ship. Increased firepower and internals at the cost of speed and maneuverability, with its primary focus on combat. Such a role has proven itself to be useful in the Federal Navy, so it is understandable that the Alliance expand into this territory with its increasing arsenal of new ships. As with the Chieftain, Lacon's excellent build quality has also found its way into the Challenger, which can be seen when investigating the interior of the ship. A company famous for its trading vessels has twice proven its ability to translate its engineering prowess into the combat arena. The cockpit, also like the Chieftain, sports a second seat for a crew member when a gunner is required. The cockpit is of classic Lacon style, with a wide field of view achieved by mounting it far forward on the frame. This, however, creates the same weakness suffered by the Chieftain, with the cockpit being vulnerable to attack. Beyond the technical specifications, a proper field test is the only way to get to know a new ship. To that end, the ship was taken bounty hunting in a hazardous resource extraction site, and then into a conflict zone. While a resource extraction site is an excellent way to experiment with a ship's damage output, the chaotic environment found in most war zones is a good test of survivability. A standard engineered combat loadout was used for the test. For weaponry, six overcharged multi-cannons were equipped. To balance damage types, the three Class I multi-cannons were modified to fire incendiary ammunition, converting their damage from kinetic to thermal. The remaining Class II hardpoint was filled with a feedback cascade railgun in order to disrupt enemy shield cell operation. Defensively, the ship was given a hybrid biweave build, the numerous large internal slots allowed over 4,000 armor integrity to be achieved underneath a high-resistance biweave shield. The high regeneration rate of a biweave allows the user to briefly withdraw from combat and allow it to recover. It also punishes enemies who are unable to consistently lay down fire, quickly regenerating lost megajoules if they miss their mark. Before beginning the bounty hunt in the resource extraction site, the flight model was put to the test. Despite losing some maneuverability compared to the Chieftain, the ship still retains impressive kinematic capabilities. While the speed is slightly below 500 meters per second, the pitch rate is almost as fast as a Fertilance, and its yaw rate is significantly higher. Combining this with the roll rate matching the Fertilances, the Challenger has excellent agility compared to its Federal dropship counterpart. Considering its impressive firepower and formidable defenses, these excellent statistics can make the ship lethal in experienced hands. If the pilot is capable, the ship can function excellently with fixed weaponry. As expected, the ship's performance in the resource extraction site was outstanding. In short engagements, the Challenger's seven hardpoints make quick work of most hostiles. The incendiary multi-cannons accelerated the depletion of enemy shields. Once shields were out of the way, 
bulkheads stood little chance when under the corrosive shell effect from the large multi-cannon. Between the engagements, the shield's rapid regeneration meant that the next fight could be started quickly, without having to wait for it to recover. Only a few engagements with larger wings and ships caused the shield to collapse, and even in such cases they reformed with only minor hull damage being taken. The ship's excellent maneuverability also allowed evasive flying while the shield was collapsed. By the time the weapons finally ran out of ammunition, the armor integrity was still over 90%. After rearming and repairing, the next test was to take the ship into a conflict zone. A conflict zone is a better test of a ship's endurance than a resource extraction site, as fights no longer consist of numerous small engagements, but rather one long battle. Under these conditions, the Challenger still performed well, though the weakness of a biweave shield became more apparent. With the ship taking much more consistent fire, fewer chances to regenerate megajoules were available. This meant that the shield collapsed and reformed dozens of times throughout the test, causing the bulkheads to take a large amount of damage. More reliance on armor also revealed another of the Challenger's weaknesses. While the close clustering of the hardpoints provided excellent convergence, Missiles were able to cause significant damage to the weaponry, causing numerous malfunctions and even disabling one multi-cannon entirely. Additionally, the canopy cracked significantly after being subjected to heavy weapons fire. The ship, however, survived the test, leaving with about 50% armor integrity when ammunition was depleted. Despite its few shortcomings, it is clear that the Challenger boasts excellent endurance, with the bulkheads holding strong in the face of overwhelming force. Lacon has taken its experience from armoring its trade vessels and applied it successfully to its combat ships. With the Thargoid threat at the forefront of today's news, many pilots seek vessels capable of going toe-to-toe with the alien vessels. With contemporary shield technology proving ineffective at repelling Thargoid weaponry, the best vessels for fighting them are those with the most resilient bulkheads. The Challenger, therefore, proves a worthy choice for such activities. The ship's respectable jump range also allows it to easily respond to new Thargoid sightings quickly. Thargoid ships are infamously agile, and the Challenger's excellent maneuverability allows this threat to be somewhat nullified. When fighting a Thargoid vessel, it is important to keep oneself in a position where escape is always an option. The Challenger's evasiveness ensures this. Further adding to its arsenal, the Challenger's hardpoints are superbly diverse in their ability to utilize anti-Xeno weapons. This, though, is in part due to the recent release of Class III Guardian weaponry, also buffing the Chieftain's anti-Xeno abilities. The three Class I hardpoints prove themselves useful dealing with the Thargoid's shield technology. The Challenger has built well on the success of the Chieftain by modifying the design for a new role. As a workhorse combat ship with considerable firepower and versatile internals, it proves itself a worthy adversary, and in many ways superior, to the competing Federal dropship. While many favor the higher speed of heavy fighter vessels, the Challenger fills the niche of a maneuverable and defensive gun platform. At the very reasonable price of 30 million credits, it will no doubt prove popular among bounty hunters, mercenaries, and Thargoid hunters in the near future. Lacon has once again proven itself capable of producing an excellent combat vessel, 
and we look forward to learning what further plans it has in ship development. Alien Capabilities Thargoid War Machine The Thargoids, once considered a myth, a dark secret only spoken about by space-mad retired pilots and Navy outcasts, returned to the known galaxy in January last year. What are they? What can they do to us? How are their ships so different? In this article, we review what we know about the Thargoids in order to help pilots out there in the black defending civilization. The first Thargoid scout, the Marauder class, rumored to be prevalent during the first Thargoid war, is an octagonal ship compared in size with a modern-day Lacon Type 6. Noted scientist Commander Arathon has made observations on the vessel's behavior and technical specifications which have been released into the public domain. Warning. These ships are highly aggressive and will shoot on sight. It is, however, quite interesting to know that they aren't as technologically advanced as the newly encountered interceptors, as regular weapons can damage and destroy these highly maneuverable scouts. The second iteration of this scout is the regenerative type which seems to act as a support vessel for other scouts in its vicinity via pulses. Not much information is available on these ships. They are similar in appearance to the Marauder and bathe in a glowing green turquoise aura. Pilots of the Anti-Xeno Initiative, the AXI, and the cooperative pilot group, the Hive, recommend eliminating these targets first when engaging multiple hostiles. The third iteration is the Berserker. This variant hits hard for a scout and is usually accompanied by other marauders and or regenerators. It looks similar to the marauder, but emits a pulse that increases damage output from scout craft. The fourth and final iteration of the Thargoid scout is the Insider. These ships attack with caustic missiles. Decontamination limpets are vital if you end up dealing with this type of scout and it is prudent to understand that these types are always encountered with an interceptor. There are three types of Thargoid interceptors, which have been designated Cyclops, Basilisk, and Medusa, in order of increasing ferocity. These ships and their accompanying Thargoid swarm are extremely dangerous and should not be engaged unless you are with experienced combat veterans. The danger that these ships pose to individual pilots venturing into conflicted territories cannot be stressed enough. While commanders have destroyed Cyclops and Basilisk alone, it is a rare achievement. The Cyclops was the first variant of Thargoid to be seen since 3151 and is significantly more powerful than a group of marauders. Initially, the Cyclops tended only to interact with human ships traveling through hyperspace by pulling their target out mid-jump, colloquially termed hyperdiction. This left the unsuspecting pilot far away from any assistance, and their ship's systems were nullified by an inhibitor pulse, which also deactivated the heads-up display. The Cyclops would then scan the immobilized ship and move away. Laterally, 
hyperdictions have not been so peaceful if the ship in question is carrying Thargoid or Guardian technology. Commanders who do so and who do not wish to engage are advised to carry the recently developed shutdown field neutralizer module, using it if the Thargoid begins to glow cyan while evading and high waking out as per their regular training. Thargoid interceptors are fast, reaching speeds of around 550 meters per second. A human pilot would generally need to avail themselves of Ishmael Palin's engineering facility in Maya to achieve comparable speeds. Interceptors' weapon systems are complex, with an energy pulse that penetrates human shields and damages the hull, combined with an arc lightning weapon that will eviscerate both shields and hull. They are also equipped with caustic missiles, detonating on impact. These missiles will degrade a ship's integrity. A single missile can destroy a ship given enough time. Decontamination limpets can stop this degradation, as will docking for repairs. Failing that, experienced pilots have halted the degradation by overheating their ship beyond 150% of normal tolerance. This may cause some minor damage to integrity, but much less than leaving caustic damage unchecked. Each variant of the Thargoid Interceptor is equipped with the same technology. However, each iteration is more powerful than the last. With noticeable increases in both offensive and defensive capability for each class. Defensively, the interceptors have no fewer than four core organs which must be attacked. The Cyclops has four hearts which must be destroyed in order to incapacitate the vessel, whilst the Basilisk has five and the Medusa six. On the offensive side, each interceptor variant comes with an attached swarm of Thargon drones, the number increasing from 32 for a Cyclops to 64 for a Basilisk and 96 for a Medusa. Thargons, discussed in a previous issue, are small autonomous swarm weapons which circle the interceptor and attack those who open fire or exhibit what they consider hostile intent. They will also reliably attack human vessels carrying Thargoid technology in their cargo hold. In addition to the weapons they carry, the Thargons can also function as small guided missiles, ramming into unshielded ships and causing critical damage. Thargons have been a major issue for commanders instigating confrontations with Thargoids, as their high speed and inertialless movement means they are tricky to hit even if you do have a remote-release flak launcher equipped. Hired crew flying specialized anti-Xeno or AX ship-launched fighters can be very effective against the swarm once they have gained sufficient experience in less hazardous scenarios. We have noted during our research that in prolonged battles between human and Thargoid ships, the balance generally tips towards the Thargoid as time goes on, as their degradation technology and ability to heal gradually come into effect. Thargoid technology was first encountered in the form of unknown artifacts, later determined to be Thargoid sensors, which were initially found being secretly transported around systems in the bubble by federal convoys. 
Later, it was discovered that these artifacts can be found floating in space between 130 and 150 light years around Merope in the Pleiades. These artifacts were very puzzling when first encountered, as when a ship entered its vicinity, they would scan it and emit a coded signal. This was later decoded and shown to vary depending on the ship class that was scanned. Further studies revealed that the artifact had broadcast a geometric representation of the ship it was scanning in a very rudimentary form known as a wireframe model, Canon Research Group said. Thygoid sensors broadcast a complex audio signal. Part of the signal has been decoded. It is a highly stylized Morse code transmission consisting of blocks of six letters. When each pair of letters is taken as coordinates and each block is interpreted as a triangle, the resulting diagram is a primitive drawing of the just scanned, i.e. your, ship. Once collected and stored, unless in a corrosion-resistant cargo rack, the sensor will begin to corrode its host systems. These objects are highly toxic and should only be handled by experienced personnel. If ejected into normal space, the sensor will orient itself towards Merope, the system of the first barnacle to be discovered. More on this later. These sensors were the first of a number of Thargoid devices to have been discovered within the vicinity of the human bubble. Another, the Thargoid probe, is easily recognized, and its specifications are now documented in every ship's computer systems. Only recently discovered, these mysterious artifacts are believed to be probes, but of unknown origin. Their physical appearance makes them likely to be related to the unknown artifacts discovered in 3301. Such mystery only serves to make these objects more widely sought after by wealthy individuals and organizations alike, no matter that their unidentified status automatically prohibits them from being sold on any legal market. Thargoid probes were also sighted in the custody of military ships close to the Sirius system and orbiting ammonia worlds in the Pleiades. This raises questions, such as to why they were being transported and where they were being taken to, which are beyond the scope of this article. Thargoid probes are curious devices and possess the same toxicity and corrosive features as Thargoid sensors. When scanned, the probe will emit a pulse that physically nudges your ship away from it. It is unknown whether this is a demonstration of technological prowess or simply a deterrent against approaching. The pulse is followed by a sound-encoded image, the nature of which is still being investigated by many organizations. The Thargoid sensor and probe make up two of the three devices of Thargoid origin which can be used to interact with a Thargoid superstructure and operate the as-yet-unidentified machine within. The third device, the Thargoid link, has only recently been discovered and along with the Thargoid superstructures in which they are typically found, has been the subject of intense research by a number of independent commanders and notable organizations such as Canon Research over the past year. Thargoid links have proven to be of particular interest to the galactic community since it was discovered that they can be used to locate new Thargoid superstructures. Thargoid barnacles are interesting organic growths that can be visited in the Pleiades and the California Nebula, 
and are the source of the metal alloy commodity. They seem to be of Thargoid origin, as Thargoid interceptors have been observed scanning and collecting matter from ripe barnacles, presumably for their own manufacturing processes. These structures can vary in size from just one or two to huge farms of barnacles, such as those observed in the Hyades sector AQ-YD81 system, planet C2, latitude 9.2924, longitude negative 153.9815. Meta-alloys are described by scientists as follows. Meta-alloys have a complex lattice structure with large internal voids. They are cellular in nature and formed organically. Meta-alloys are noted for their incredible strength, being much stronger than foamed aluminium, for example. Many elements form the structure, so technically they are alloys, but the composition is different in different parts of the cell walls for strength. Surprisingly, they are good thermal insulators and have a high melting point. But once they are melted, they lose all their special properties and become a conventional alloy. They are easily machined, but as yet cannot be manufactured, only found in space. They are associated with recently discovered alien entities nicknamed large barnacles by interstellar explorers. These appear to be common in certain parts of space, although no one is certain why. These materials have been heralded as the next step in materials technology. They are ultralight and stronger and more versatile than most commercially available alloys. This information is readily available once at Darnell's Progress in the Maya system, where you can purchase the commodity in limited amounts. Thargoid scavengers are found operating in and around Thargoid superstructures and in the barnacle forest. These drones seem to be autonomous and perform repair or maintenance tasks. They can be seen removing substances from the Thargoid superstructures and scanning egg-like structures around them. We can only assume that they operate with a purpose designed by their creators. These drones can become hostile if fired upon or damaged. Although they are hardly indestructible, if a number of them are aggravated, then they can damage a surface recon vehicle, or SRV. These numerous Thargoid superstructures nested in planets around the galaxy can be found using cryptolinists on the information obtained from assessing Thargoid device. Curiously, on approach, the structure is seen to be enveloped in ammonia, with scavengers all around, removing something from the outside and disposing of it elsewhere. These structures house a device that, once activated, with a Thargoid link, probe, and sensor in the correct receptors, displays a helical pattern, much like the depiction of a galaxy, but not matching the barreled spiral structure of the Milky Way. The galaxy's greatest minds currently are at work trying to solve this puzzle. One key advantage that present-day commanders of the Pilots' Federation enjoy over those acting in the last Thargoid War is a greatly enhanced ability to communicate in real time across the galaxy and band together. Sagittarius I is just one example of that. Let us hope that such cooperation can tip the balance in the current war. The Strange History of John Graham Conspiracy theories abound across the galaxy, 
relating to all manner of strange occurrences from missing generation ships to alien artefacts recovered from the ruins of ancient civilizations. Our explorers and scientists find answers to these mysteries, but often those answers provoke even more questions in our quest for understanding. Occasionally those questions arrive from somewhere closer to home. Such is the case with John Graham. The name seems to be a common one, and tracing back through our available records, one that originated on Earth. Both parts are anglicised. The first name is biblical in origin, and the second comes from the phrase grey home. There is certainly something grey about the instances of John Graham that appear in more recent historical records. According to the Lavian Historical Archive, John Graham was the name of the federal ambassador to the system during the revolution of 3265. His assassination occurred just prior to the coup and was a source of considerable tension for the next 30 years. A detailed check of the archive records reveals that there is no picture of the man on file. This is a strange anomaly for such a public figure. Another John Graham appeared in security camera footage 30 years later from an asteroid base called the Hollows. This individual was involved in the attempted apprehension of a wanted criminal known as Angel Rose of Slough Orbital. A John Graham also served as a bartender in New Borokay. A Commander John Graham was noted as a spy, betraying humanity in the Farak system by selling military defence secrets. Another Commander John Graham was recorded as an Imperial pilot who was a participant in a battle in the Sai Ocantis system. Yet another entry has him registered as an Independent. Strangely, the elite federation of pilots has no photograph of any of these people, an omission your correspondent has not seen in their records before. We do have an image of an archpriest John Graham, a cult leader of a cult during or before the maledict virus outbreak on Yorkville. The picture is old and of low resolution, but the man's brown hair and unassuming features beneath his priestly robe and cowl can be made out. It's the kind of ordinary face you wouldn't remember unless you tried very hard. A second similar face appears on the business registration documents of the John Graham Corporation, or JGC, situated on Madison Station. Comparing these images led us to think that they're off the same person. How could one man lead such different lives? We tried to find Madison Station, but it doesn't appear to be in Universal Cartographic's records. Further inquiries find no such company in existence. The sprawling commercial city that the marketing material mentions must either be a fake or now under different management. We do have an extensive Holovid archive of the interstellar documentary presenter John Graham. His expose series, The Secret Lives of Spacers, was fairly popular on Federation channels a couple of decades ago. The images of this man are almost identical to those found elsewhere, brown hair, unassuming facial features. However, this John Graham is much more verbose than any of his previous incarnations. Looking through his published background, there is no indication that he was a clone and it would be highly unlikely an individual could achieve minor celebrity status if he were manufactured in that way. 
it might be possible that this John Graham sold his DNA print to a commercial factory. But that would not account for earlier mentions of him as federal ambassador. Even if this were the case, if it had been revealed, the ensuing scandal would have ruined Graham's career in either field. It's possible that there's no connection between these people. John Graham could just be a common name. After all, there are a variety of very popular names from Earth appearing on multiple records of individuals throughout colonised space. That said, the similarity of the man's picture, in some instances, and the strange omissions of his face from a variety of other sources, we found do make the situation mysterious. Could John Graham be a spy? Or a clone? An artificial intelligence in human form, hidden in plain sight? Or even a Thargoid plant inserted into our society, a bug in a skin, as it were? We will be continuing our investigations. If you spot any further people called John Graham in your travels, please report them to Sagittarius I. And if you are John Graham, please contact us. We'd be very interested in asking you some questions. The Galactic Cooperative and the Rise of the Independent Pilot Galcott is a household name in today's galaxy. Most people know it as the broad union of Pilots' Federation factions that has been in the news periodically for the last few years. Those with longer memories know that the name has a richer historical heritage, one that is bound up with the emergence of today's political landscape and the phenomenon of the independent pilot itself. The Old World's Coalition was a union of colonies and the core systems that banded together in the last years of the 25th century. The militia was composed of private merchant ships ill-prepared for battle, whose pilots lacked the skill or will to fight. During a massive imperial insurgency in 2498, the coalition was forced to disband its navy and focus solely on trade and exploration. Serendipitously, one consequence of the imperial mandate was the blossoming prosperity of the old worlds after becoming the chief producers of hydrogen fuel in the region. As time went on, popularity of coalition policies began to decline among the citizens in the 27th century, and in 2690, the colonists of Reedquart seized power from the coalition-backed off-world government. The colonists, though, had no real plan for power, and Reedquart descended into an anarchy that would last for centuries. The revolution forced coalition officials to begin making more permissive decrees to prevent additional uprisings. After years of negotiation, restructuring and legislation, the finished product was the official charter under the first Galactic Cooperative Chief Executive Officer, Harris Morsvan. The Galactic Cooperative of Worlds was officially established in August of 2696. The core tenets of GALCOP were the preservation of member worlds' economic and political independence, minimal membership requirements, free trade and mutual defence. In contrast to the Federation's and Empire's policies, GALCOP employed cooperation and peace to encourage expansion. However, GALCOP's leadership would eventually adopt an isolationist policy that tried to restrict trade routes only to member worlds. This was quickly condemned by the Federation and the Empire, as these protectionist policies had the potential to destabilise the entire galactic economy. Despite several warnings from the Empire, Galcop continued to operate in this manner. Four years into Morsvan's administration, 
Galcott moved its capital to the Lave system and built administrative facilities on both Planet Lave and Lave Station. That same year, a spaceflight training centre was created in the system for citizens of the cooperative's member worlds in order to operate a new line of ships designed specifically for independent pilots. These were manufactured by Watt and Brittany, replaced the slower, larger vessels operated by corporations. Its premier ship, the Python, was approved and cleared by Galcott for sale to the public in 2700, and the multi-role platform revolutionised space travel and spurred the rise of the independent pilot. Beginning in the 2810s, humans and Thargoids began crossing paths within Galcott territory. Initially, Galcott pilots reported disappearances and hyperdrive malfunctions within its borders and near the Pleiades Nebula, only to have their accounts dismissed as unfortunate accidents. Then, in 2849, an image was leaked in the lave system showing the wreckage of a ship and a section of mottled hull bearing the word fragment Tharg. With that, the galactic media coined the term Thargoid as a name for the possible alien life form. Unfortunately, no physical evidence ever materialised supporting the existence of Thargoids, and the idea drifted into the fog of myth and legend. There would not be another similar attack for 276 years. It was in 3125 when two independent pilots discovered two debris fields after their ships were pulled unexpectedly into normal space while transiting to another system. Both survived the interdiction from hyperspace and the subsequent assault by octagonal ships, claiming that an unknown type of laser weapon was used. They chose to refer to their attackers as Thargoids, in reference to the 29th century incident. After a top-secret report was leaked within the core systems, it became apparent that the Federation's leadership believed that colonists in the Velier's system had somehow crossed paths with a swarm of Thargoids and engaged them out of fear which, in turn, forced the retaliatory strikes. This would prove a defining moment for Galcop. Its leadership made the decision to work with the Federation in an effort to defend human space from the Thargoids. Both Federal and Galcop Navy forces flew combat missions inside vulnerable systems, which meant that Galcop had to reassign scores of trade vessels to fulfil its military commitment. Hundreds of missions were flown, hundreds of ships were destroyed, many of the pilots were never recovered. Allegedly, the capture of a Thargoid spacecraft allowed Galcop scientists to reverse-engineer the alien drive technology and produce a revolutionary new hyperdrive that far exceeded those previously used for space travel. While this history is disputed, some would say this was the precursor to a frameshift drive, FSD, early models of which were on the market by the 3270s, although the term was not applied commercially until the launch of the Sirius model in 3298 AD. This innovation allowed for massive human expansion and was of great benefit to independent traders and explorers. Eventually, the technology fell into the hands of the Sirius Corporation and its engineers significantly upgraded the FSD, selling it to anyone with enough credits. Fortunately, because of the overwhelming military operation and the INRA's use of its biological mycoid weapon, the Thargoid aggression came to an end in the 32nd century as the alien menace withdrew from human space. Data collected from the megaship GCS Sarasvati shows the original war ending sometime in the year 3151. During the drawdown, Galcott created a network of deep space monitoring stations 
one of which was the GCS Tsar Rasvati herself, as a first line of defence against the Thargoid resurgence. The programme, known as Project Equinox, became a logistical nightmare, and its cost increased significantly over time. By the end of 3155, members of the programme were calling on the leadership to redeploy the ships in an effort to reduce the expense. Nearly two decades later, in 3172, burdened by massive debt following the war, Galcop and its membership had become fractured. Galcop CEO Simone Hendry had no choice but to shut down Project Equinox on August the 16th of that year. As the programme was being dismantled, Mission Commander Dr Cassandra Lockhart discovered that the Thargoids had begun rebuilding their war machine. Unfortunately, Galcop's leadership never studied her full report as they busied themselves dismantling the Inra. By 3170, Galcop had been reduced to only 11 member worlds, all located within the Old Worlds region. The once awe-inspiring interstellar superpower had descended to the original tiny patch of populated space that had been occupied by the Old Worlds Coalition in 2483. In a bid to keep the power afloat, Henry sold off the majority of Galcop's assets to the Federation and the Empire in exchange for access to their trade routes did little to stop the slide into debt and isolation. On August the 19th, 3174, amid revolution on Lave, the Galactic Cooperative of World's Charter was finally rescinded. The first Galcop's existence was a significant period of human history, demonstrating an ambitious and successful exercise in the power of free trade and mutual defence. Its spiritual successor, the Alliance of Independent Systems was created in 3230 and bears many of the features of its predecessor. We have much to thank Galcop for, ushering in one of the three great superpowers of today's galaxy, defending humanity against the Thargoids, making possible our own way of life as independent pilots. Its 400-year existence was a seminal period in human history that we would do well to remember. Thank you for listening to Issue 13 of Sagittarius Eye Magazine. This issue featured articles written by Alan Stride, JC Warren, Jessica Sonnet, McNichol, Michael Darkmoor, Millie Watto, Rasudin, Suverin, and the Thargoid. This audio edition featured the voices of Adernis, Beetlejuice, Daryl Noir, Edelweiss, Maya Fey, MacGyver, Perky Percy, Phoenix Defire, Poet Sparrow, Rosetta Stone, Suverin, Spidey Double Two, Wotherspoon, Wrangler, Actual, and was edited by Adernis, Edelweiss, Suverin, Doctor Toxic, and Wotherspoon. Music was composed and performed by Dustin, Midnight Driscoll, and Toko So. We'd like to thank our Patreon subscribers for their continued support of our efforts to entertain and inform the galaxy by commanders for commanders. For copies of back issues of our magazine, please visit our website at sagittarius-i.com. Sagittarius I was created using assets and imagery from Elite Dangerous with the permission of Frontier Developments PLC for non-commercial purposes. It is not endorsed by nor reflects the views and opinions of Frontier Developments and no employee of Frontier Developments was involved in the making of it. Thank you.